1: Hey listeners, if you find value in this podcast and would like to support this project, please consider signing up on Patreon, where you can support the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind-the-scenes updates. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. I'd love to see you there. And right now, there's a little extra perk for new Patreons if you sign up before the end of May. Coming up next on the Leverboard Sailing Podcast.
3: Our engine in particular wasn't very environmentally friendly, that's for sure. Mm. It excelled actually at turning money into smoke and noise. That was about it.
4: Yeah, I think it's as well like we want to travel around the world and to be able to do that on a sailing boat is obviously much better than flying environmentally. It's like, well, how else can we improve? Be able to travel and see these beautiful places with minimal impact, just being a little bit more conscious.
1: Welcome to the podcast, I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, we talk all about transitions. More specifically, transitioning to the Liverboard lifestyle, transitioning to an electric boat, And finally, transitioning to off-grid life on a sailboat. My guests are George and Sinead from Electric Vagabonds, who live on their sailboat in the UK. This couple is chasing the opportunity to travel the world fossil fuel free, and I asked them about their decision to go electric and what their experience has been so far. We also talk about working remotely from a sailboat and being off-grid in England, where relying on solar power is sometimes a bit of a challenge. Now here we go with George and Sinead. How did you get started with the Aboard life in the UK? Like, talk me through your story. How did you decide to become liveaboard sailors?
4: Well, it was George who was always said the sailor. Um, so we've been together like nine years when we first got together. Uh, I mean, very apparent, all I want to do is travel the world. And George's like, cool, I want to sail the world. And I was like, well, all right, that, that kind of works don't know anything about sailing never been on a boat at that point um but it was always like something that we had in mind wasn't it like we were always going to live on a boat and we were always going to travel the world and um, we didn't know when it would happen because we were absolutely skin at that time <laughs> so it definitely so, wasn't straight away <laughs> so
3: broke yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah um but yeah that's just we've always just wanted to travel travel the world and then see the sailing um uh, yeah means that you never have to pack as well I hate packing and carrying a bag about And there's always things you forget so for me it's great because I can never leave my toothbrush somewhere
1: (laughs) no I I love that because you know I also love traveling but it is such a hassle to you know choose your hotels every time because of course if you do like longer term travel for like a month or two there's a lot of hotel or hostel bookings or all these little details and on an idea level traveling on your own sailboat just feels like and it sounds like the perfect solution which I'm yet to try but people keep telling me it's great
4: <laughs> anyway, it's nothing like it's nothing quite like it like the sense of freedom that you have with it like you can go anywhere the only thing that you're restricted by is tides and winds really and depth so
1: how long have you been liverboards now
3: we've been living on board for two and a half years
1: yeah about that. is it so, yeah, yeah, two About and a half that.
3: years. <laughs> we've had That's the boat good. three years ish. So, we've lived on her for most of the time we've had her.
1: Right. So, you started off by fixing it up a little bit. So, what kind of boat uh, is it? What's the size of it and, and the brand and so all that? Um,
3: 36 feet. And uh, she's an Oyster Mariner 35. And uh, yeah, she's a catch, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good size, I think, for us. And the reason we bought her is because she's so voluminous inside. Um, she's got a big aft cabin with a walk around double uh, in it and it's a bit of an odd design it's it's not a usual thing you see on the market now I don't think um but we really like her
4: yeah we didn't when we first viewed her um we weren't actually intending to like we weren't serious about buying her there was a, one that was more in our price range in Gibraltar and we're like well instead of flying all the way up to Gibraltar for something that could be something we don't like we're like let's go and see the slightly more expensive one and just see if we like it and we stepped on board and we're like oh, damn it so nice this is our boat <laughs> we have to make it happen <laughs> yeah pretty much wasn't it? Yeah. yeah fell in love with that instantly
1: and how do you find the size 35 36 feet as a liveaboard uh, and a full disclosure i'm yet to be on a 35 foot boat so i've only been on like 40 or 42 and I'm trying to picture like financially speaking a 36 foot boat would be a great option but uh, how do you find that as a like as a full-time liveaboard you know working and doing everything uh do you find it is a no case okay size
4: to be honest with you when we first started looking we were looking at 40 foot 42 45 um we didn't really consider anything less than that but she's just such a well-designed boat and um, she's got so much space in her and like i I think it's the perfect size for it. And like you said, it's in that under 36 foot. So financially, if you need to go into a marina, it's not extortionate. Um, it's kind of like that nice. Much easier sort of to handle
3: as well. Um, 100%. Man- man- maneuvering her um, just as a couple and things like that. I mean, we can do that. We can actually do most things on board single-handed, which is handy. I don't think you'd be able to say the same for most of boats over 40 feet. And I think she's probably the only 35 foot boat I could live on, to yeah, be honest with you. I agree. Same I mean we, we don't we could live on a much smaller boat you know we could now once, once you've <laughs> got the space, the space. You, I think you'd miss it you know and I think a lot of people that live on 45 footers would find it maybe difficult downsizing I don't know
4: although we've had a few friends who've got bigger boats than us come on board and they're just amazed at the amount of space that we have
3: for a 35 footer they're
4: like I could live on this and they're used to a 45 foot but yeah she is she's a beamy big wide girl she's not a fast
3: boat (laughs) definitely not a fast
1: boat
4: we get to five knots and we're like yeah we're smashing it
1: (laughs) yeah fair enough i suppose the design does make a big difference of course and i don't think there are a lot of oyster boats here in where i am on the east coast of north america at least i haven't seen many of them pop up on the art world but um i know there there are more maybe popular in the uk or in europe in general but uh, just going back to as you were thinking of you know, buying a boat and then eventually traveling the world and all that. How long were you thinking and, and planning for the process of buying a boat? Or like, how long did it actually take you to find that boat?
3: Oh, we looked at like 30 boats before.
1: I mean, we were, even, even when we had absolutely no money,
4: uh, we'd just go on Boatshed and just have a little browse. We'd be like, yeah. okay, just to inspire <laughs> us to keep working, keep going towards that dream. Um, I think we seriously... Started thinking about it when we came back from doing our season So we um, spent three summers in the south of France teaching uh, dinghy sailing um, on a camp, and it was it was awesome. It was definitely a really fun way to spend yeah. uh, nine months of your year. But unfortunately, there's not much money in it. So when we were thinking about we want a boat now to start like doing our own adventures, we yeah we came back to the UK to to play at real life for a little bit. <laughs>
3: Yeah, we had to save money, and there was, you know, we could save a bit of money um, working as what sports instructors doing the season lifestyle, but it wasn't really enough. So we, yeah, we were planning for a long time, but we actually only only took what two years. Yeah, would you say um, eighteen
4: months? I think
3: once we back once we moved back to the UK, yeah, you know, like I guess say proper jobs <laughs> got got decent jobs, um, which actually, yeah, was you know hard work, but sort of paid off. Yeah, two years we had the boat. But we looked at many, many boats before this one. Lots
4: of boats. We actually put on an offering in a different boat, didn't we?
3: Yeah, Forehand. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Our idea of a date for quite a long time was booking <laughs> a viewing of a boat, <laughs> going and seeing it, and then going to the pub after, having you a know, pint and some, <laughs> some chips, talking about the boat. And yeah, it was quite good fun, well, wasn't we'd it? We'd line
4: really? up two or three boats in a, in a day, wouldn't we, if we were yeah. going to a particular yard. Even if we weren't seriously considering that style, it's just really good when you're looking for a boat to look around at all the different varieties so you can pick out actually I like that I don't like that because we want to because it's such an investment we wanted to buy once and buy right really love the boat that we have and sort of have it as like the boat so we were quite conscious on what we wanted what we don't want and obviously there's always compromise when you uh, buy a boat but this one was minimal compromises.
1: Yeah that sounds so good I, I completely agree on that that is a great idea of a date just go look at boats and then you know, have a little beer and uh, have a chat about that. And I really look forward to doing that as soon as the snow melts enough that I can actually drive somewhere somewhat safely, because of course I'm not on the ocean, so I'll have to drive somewhere. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. I already looked at a few boats like on the East Coast US or in the Great Lakes, like, oh, well, if these boats are still there we could go do here do a little weekend road trip and <laughs> do all that so that's that's a uh, good fun but yeah 18 months or a couple of years uh, that's a uh, that's a good amount of time and uh, to get to see a few different boats and know what you like and don't like so that's that's good to hear so one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that your boat is electric so talk to me about that was it electric when you bought it did you you mentioned that you had it for three years, but you lived on in two and a half. So is that six month time period uh, the transition to electric, or how how does that look like?
3: Uh, she was diesel when we bought her. Needed a lot of work. So that that six month period, she was out on the hard in Hailing Island near Portsmouth, and uh, we did lots of work on her. But that wasn't when the electric um, conversion took place. That was just
4: we we spoke about it.
3: Oh, we did speak about we it. Just yeah, the I, do
4: it. <laughs> I wanted to.
3: I wanted to make an electric boat since we've been thinking of having a boat you know Uh, we've watched sailing umo and what they've been able to do with it in the various versions of uh, electric propulsion that they've had as well you know started from square one with uh, a forklift motor i think it was or something wasn't it you know so they were really inspiring lots of other people have done it since as well but yeah the electric conversion actually took place for us when we were looking at rebuilding the engine so all the work we did when we first bought the boat was just basics just to get it back onto the water and get it into a a state that we could safely sail it and the engine was it was all right it was all right wasn't it It (laughs) yeah we could have rebuilt it and I reckon it would have done another 40 years you know um solid engines it was an old Perkins 4108 they're brilliant but it was really noisy leaked oil so badly like you fix an oil leak and another one would appear the next day it was horrific
4: I can remember the amount of times that we'd be like preparing to go for a lovely little day sail, perfect weather you know sunny in the UK You've got to make those moments, haven't you, count? And like we've got the boat already, then so you turn on the engine, and it's just like, oh, no, wait, we're not going anywhere.
3: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the most reliable thing. It would it would have been if we'd rebuilt it, but the whole engine bay was knackered. The state of the electrics was appalling. And we also had a diesel bug in our built-in diesel tank. So the diesel tank's laminated into the bottom of the boat, so it's not like we can replace the tank. We'd have to clean it. But all things that are possible and that we considered... Um, but by the time we were looking at refurbishing the fuel system, the entire engine bay, most of the electrics, we, we looked at the cost of that. We added it up. It was going to be, what, 13 grand, I think?
4: No. So it was, it was like it was going to be about nine grand to get it all refurbished and do it ourselves. But then we had to time to take into account of like George dedicating time to do it because he's a, an engineer. So he would be able to do it all himself. But it's then if you're not working and doing that is cost benefit analysis all the time so then we're in the realms of looking at a new engine um and if we're doing a new engine obviously all the fuel systems like you said everything yeah. needs to be replaced we couldn't,
3: we couldn't afford to pay someone to do the work for us and if i do it myself i take time off work to do it so i'm not earning money so it all sort of added up really and
4: yeah and then we we tallied up i'm i'm a fan of a good spreadsheet um so i tallied up the costs of everything um and also we were like well whilst we're exploring all options let's look at Electric conversions and see how much that would actually cost and what that looks like. Is only going to cost us two, two and a half, two grand more?
3: At first, yeah. At first, yeah. It was actually a bit more than that in the end, but <laughs> that was the motivation behind it because the cost to convert was similar and it was much easier, I think, than rebuilding an engine. So that was what sort of led us to do it.
1: Yeah, and environmentally, it's the future. Yeah, no, I, I would tend to agree on that, uh, especially with all the uh, electric uh, vehicles as well becoming so popular these days. But what was your driver? Why did you want an electric boat apart from uh, the, the cost benefit system? I gather from your Instagram that you're rather environmentally aware. Can you talk a little bit about that, about your call it a philosophy or, or whatever in terms of uh, sustainability and, and all that?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we are very, very much environmentally minded. Being electric has loads of benefits, but that was a big driving force behind it, to be honest with you. And with the old engine, the amount of fuel leaks and oil leaks it had, um, it was just a right pain in the ass to dispose of all of that properly and uh, responsibly, really. We were always pumping out the bilges into buckets, carrying them to the oil disposal place in the marina, and then it's got like water in it, so you can't put it in there. Like, what do you do with that stuff? yeah our engine in particular wasn't very environmentally friendly that's for sure it excelled actually at turning money into smoke and noise that was about it
4: yeah i think it's as well like we want to travel around the world and to be able to do that on a sailing boat is obviously much better than flying environmentally it's like well how else can we improve and just be able to travel and see these beautiful places with minimal impact just being a little bit more conscious and it's amazing as well like um we were sailing to the sillies last year and it wasn't it was pretty light wind we're coming back from the sillies and um a pod of dolphins were like alongside us which is really cool and we turned the motor on and they went from the bow of the boat right to the stern and they were looking at like they just didn't really understand what was going on because obviously it doesn't make any noise really yeah it was interesting
3: wasn't it i mean we've had you know, dolphins follow us before and stuff, but the response was very much different to when we were diesel. It was really interesting to see. I don't know whether they noticed the difference or whether they were
1: just <laughs>
3: used to hearing an engine or it's coincidence, but yeah, it was really interesting to watch.
1: Oh, that's really cool. So in terms of the noise, is it actually really just silent? Because I'm picturing, uh, you know, I've seen dinghies that have an electric mo- motor and it's kind of a higher pitch hum or whatever. Is that similar or is it actually just kind of non-existent because it's hiding away somewhere
3: on this one um because it's still shaft drive we still get the noise of um the shaft and the cutlass bearing so there's a a little bit of a rumble from the shaft the motor itself is silent it's direct drive so there's no gears so you don't get any whining from gears or anything like that there's a little bit of noise from the prop and that's the thing as well like we would never be able to hear that with a diesel engine so the noise that we can hear now well the first time we turned the motor on we sort of thought is that normal like does shafts make that noise is there something wrong with our cutlass bearing? I don't know because we've never heard it before because the engine's always on. So that was interesting. And, and it, you know, if you have a different design, there's a lot of electric sail drives out there. They're a bit noisier because you have the gears in the bottom. Um, so you get more gear noise. Again, you wouldn't hear that if it was a diesel engine. So they do make different sounds.
4: It's much more pleasant when you're down below in motoring. You can just have conversation with each other.
3: Oh, yeah, there's no way like... we'd be able to talk like this now with the engine on <laughs> yeah. yeah, before. <laughs>
1: But you must have pretty good solar setup as well. So what do you have for that? And how does that work in the UK? Because I know I lived in Scotland. I know you're in England, but still, how does that work?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not the best place to be solar powered, mm-hmm. I don't think. But if it works here. I think it's probably going to work anywhere. We've got two bifacial LG panels over the cockpit. So we've got a center cockpit boat and we've made kind of like a solar bimini, I guess which was kind of cool because we were looking at having a cockpit cover anyway, weren't we? So two birds, one stone. Mm -hmm. Um,
4: Less canvas work. (laughs) Yeah.
3: They're 415 watts each, but because they're bifacial, they can actually generate, uh, I think, up to 520 maybe. I don't know. It was a bit more, isn't it? 550. So yeah, in theory, there's a kilowatt of solar there, um, but we've only seen it go as high as 900 and something watts in the summer. And in the winter, yeah, it's not great. Like, we are completely off grid from February until about November and we can generally survive like that. But in the winter, we have to be supplemented by shore power uh, at the moment in the UK. I think if we're somewhere sunnier, we'd be able to do it all year, probably. We
4: have the wind turbine as well, 400 watt, 48 volt wind turbine, which I absolutely love. I know it's mixed opinions about turbines, but it's amazing. I love it because it, when it's not sunny in the UK, pretty much it's cloudy and windy. So it, it does kind
3: of does fill the gaps nicely doesn't it
1: right yeah that makes sense i'm picturing like west coast canada which is also a little bit similar to the uk weather wise like it's you know it's not snowy it's dreary you know it rains a lot but it's also windy so that's an interesting piece of equipment to mention as well but obviously electric is still fairly new in the sailing world and and there are people who say that the technology is you know not quite there yet or maybe it's not it's not as reliable as a you know, a modern diesel engine. So what are your thoughts on that based on your experience so far in the UK?
3: Yeah, I'd say it's not comparable to a diesel engine. It, it never will be. Well, that's not strictly true. It might be one day, but right now it's not comparable in in range specifically, you know, um, you're never going to get the range that you have with a diesel engine unless you have some sort of diesel generator or something on board, which lots of people do, you know, and then they have the choice um, whether to use diesel or solar um maybe if they are on a stricter timeline they can just start their their generator and and, you know get home whereas for us we sort of like pushing pushing it a bit and seeing how far we can get without diesel um it's not for everyone but i'd say that was its only shortfall really i think that's the only way it's not as good as diesel is in range i think in every other way it's superior to be honest with you
4: I think it's a change of mentality as well like I think um if you're on a schedule and you've got to go you want to go from A to B and you have to be back for work or whatever potentially it's not going to be the right choice for you because if there's wind great you can sail if there's not much wind then you just sail a little bit slower if there's no wind you put the genoa up and do a tiny little bit of motor sailing um like it's just we sail as much as we can that is our main form of propulsion and the the electric motors really for maneuvering and getting us out of the tight spot and it's just going back to those roots of I guess more traditional sailing isn't it?
3: It is it's like a fusion of the past and the future you know like (laughs) yeah yeah, we only have 20 miles range at the moment Uh, we're going to double our battery bank this year and that will give us more so it's how you use those miles and uh, you know people sailed without mechanical propulsion for thousands of years very successfully and now we have all the benefits of modern weather forecasting, modern navigation. So it's, you know, you've got get the best of, b- best of both worlds, I think, really.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's really well said that it's kind of a fusion between the modern and, and the past because that's, that kind of is it. And at least, you know, I have heard sailing UMA say that at least you learn to be a really good sailor if you have to, Sure. you know, maneuver the boat in very light winds or maybe, you know, sail to a marine hour or it was an anchorage or, or something. So um, there's that aspect as well. But. Yeah, it probably does take quite a bit of commitment uh, to really see the value. And then I'm picturing like if someone is environmentally conscious and, and really focused on sustainable lifestyle, they can you know, forgive some of the shortcomings. But if somebody just happened to buy an electric boat without any sort of deeper meaning to it, it might become a frustration for them and yeah. the range anxiety might, uh, might get to them.
3: And they can, of course, they can always just add a generator and i would argue that that is still better than a diesel engine because at least then you have several forms of energy several sources of energy um and you have the choice whether to use it or not so you know if you if you are on a schedule cool start the dc generator and it's basically a diesel electric then yeah and there's no point as well in sacking off a completely good diesel engine if a boat's got a good diesel engine it doesn't need replacing it doesn't make sense to go electric at that point because that's wasteful in itself
1: mm. so it
3: becomes a bit paradoxical at that point i think
1: yeah that's true that's true but at the same time there's you know every so often because i you know browse the world like on a daily basis every so often there is a boat that is like you know it's a great boat but the engine sh- just shut. like you'll have to rebuild it or remove it then it's like hmm, well maybe opportunity.
3: <laughs> yeah that is the perfect opportunity and the boat's often uh, a bit cheaper as a result of that as well so helps mitigate the cost
1: well while we're on the topic of sort of sustainable living and all that and you mentioned you are environmentally conscious i'm curious what other ways does this uh show in your life apart from being electric on your on your sailboat um is there anything else on your sailboat or on your lifestyle that you sort of focus on
3: yeah we try and minimize our impact as far as is practical generally and i think that's a really important way of putting it, it is as far as practical you know um there's just some things you can't avoid now like buying salad in a supermarket is going to be in plastic
4: and until that changes and that needs to come from from supermarkets and consumers having a demand for that. Yeah. But that's going to take time. I think the the little wins that we do is everything on board um, is all biodegradable, um, marine safe. We don't use any kind of chemical that can mitigate its way into the ocean in any way, and we're quite we're very we're very very um, conscious of that.
1: And do you find that there are a lot of, uh, or at least sort of decent selection, sustainable, say, cleaning products or whether whatever other products you need uh, on your boat?
3: There's more and more. Yeah, there's more and more um, appearing. What's the one we have at the moment? Ocean Saver? Oh,
4: yeah. Ocean Saver. Yeah. yeah.
3: So that's, yeah, that's, that's just one. There's loads out there. But yeah, that's, you know, one we have on board at the moment. And I think that, yeah, that's a really easy change to make on board, really, that other things we do, you know, try and buy plastic free where possible. There's a, there's limited choices we have as consumers, though, we can only really do what, what we can in line with what exists out there, you know, so most of it revolves around what we put down the drain on the boat, to be honest with you, and what we eat as well, you know, yeah, big choices we can make with our food, uh, environmentally, stuff like that. But that's about it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's already a lot, especially, you know, any kind of food choices. But yeah, I, I share your frustration regarding the plastics, because um, I'm vegan, so I eat a lot of vegetables. And you know, all that kind of that kind of produce, and so much of it is wrapped in plastic. It just drives me crazy. And then maybe if the organic version is not wrapped in plastic, but it's like three times the cost. <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, hopefully one day we'll get get to a different state of affairs with that stuff.
4: I think it's slowly changing. We're seeing in the UK more and more like plastic-free shops popping up everywhere, um, which is a really good sign. Uh, yeah, with think. like refill stations, you know, mm-hmm. so you can
3: take like your container and you fill it with rice and you know pasta or whatever that's there's loads of those now change is happening slowly yeah it's getting there
1: <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: So, always you have a bit of knowledge about all things electric. So, if someone is interested in learning more about maybe switching to electric or just interested in exploring the possibility would you have any sort of resources to recommend, whether it's books or websites or companies or Instagram accounts or, or whatever, where people could go get inspired?
3: Yeah, there's a few. I mean, what were the main things we looked at? YouTube was massive. Obviously, you know, I mentioned Sailing Uma already, and there's lots of other electric sailors out there as well doing YouTube. That was a big, big influence for us, wasn't there? Uh, in terms of what other sources of info did we look at? Books-wise, I mean, there's not much on electric propulsion um books wise i think because it's so new but of course marine electrics and the theory behind it still applies and there's lots of books out there on that so in terms of learning about marine electronics in general nigel calder's book um was really helpful for us um not just during the electric conversion but in Does boat ownership up? anyway yeah that was great um i think there'll probably be more things in future websites you were researching some stuff weren't you was only websites that sprung to mind
4: it was kind of a bit of a black plug hole, boats. to be honest.
3: Plug boats is quite yeah, good, isn't it? There's, there's lots of info on plug boats.
4: There's just, there wasn't, you really had to pick around for information and bits from here, bits from there, bits from another place, whereas, because it is still so new, it's not, there's not loads of information on it and it is an experiment. Like.
3: Yeah. There is a, a portal and it's mm-hmm. it's slightly a bit biased because we're heavily involved in it, but it's called <laughs> sailelectric.com. Um, so that will be a portal for, Electric propulsion and uh, energy on boats in general—it's um, developing all the time. So that's you know that's coming. But um, yeah, it, yeah, I think you're right with sifting sifting through information and and because there's a lot you know everyone you speak to in, in boating as an expert, right? So and there's a lot of people there's a lot of people that we've spoken to about electric since we've done the conversion and they've said oh it will never work oh that will never work. And we're like, well, <laughs> we've proved it works, mate. So you know, uh, yeah, we've had, had some interesting conversations.
1: Oh, I can imagine. I think
4: electric cars are becoming more frequent. I think with prices of diesel and stuff as well, we're now looking more and more at...
3: Diesel's <laughs> yeah. astronomical at the moment in the UK. <laughs> yeah, we're really smug. It's terrible.
4: <laughs> yeah. The only thing we have diesel on is for our heater, our diesel heater, because at the moment there's no there's no alternative. You need a heater in the UK or else it just gets bloody miserable.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And let's talk about that, living on a boat in the UK, because obviously, you know, it's... Um, it feels like a, a great place to do that in terms of, um, you know, thinking of someone coming from Canada. It's like, oh, well, I could go to the UK. You know, they speak English. The weather isn't too bad. Again, coming from Canada, UK weather seems totally fine <laughs> when it's not minus 20 or minus 30 in the winter. Um, but I understand that you were recently sort of kindly told to leave a marina that you had been living aboard previously along with some other uh, live aboard cruisers. So, uh, I'd love to hear more about sort of maybe the general attitude towards liverboard sailors. Is it is it improving or is it uh, doing the opposite? I'd
3: say it wasn't improving. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've only lived on board, like we said, two and a half years. In that time, we've been asked to leave two marinas.
4: Well, you've been asked to leave.
3: <clears throat> not personally. Really, really, they've no. just they've just you know made
4: it very apparent that liverboards are not particularly welcome. Yeah, um,
3: it is quite a hostile environment sometimes. Uh, Marinas in the UK um, and liverboards. There's a few that openly accept liverboards and welcome them, and I think that's lovely. But the general consensus at the moment is that living aboard isn't allowed for whatever reason. Yeah, it's quite challenging. And they take a similar approach to people who live in vans or buses, you know. And they have done for decades. That's the issue, really. I think it's uh, it, it's indicative of a big bigger attitude towards alternative living.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and I'm definitely seeing the very same thing in Canada. Like it's all fine if you have a boat as long as you also have a house somewhere else, or it's fine if you have a van, as long as you also have a house somewhere. And the same with tiny houses, they're not exactly legal in Canada. I know in some countries they are, because I looked into this before being <laughs> moving to sailboats and it it's not really a doable thing. And it it's really frustrating because, um, you know, I would love to have a house and two cars and a boat and a van, but uh, I, I think my options are limited to one of those. <laughs> so, yeah. so that that is definitely frustrating uh, here uh, in Canada as well. Um, and so you obviously then left a marina recently and now you're off grid uh, somewhere in Southern England. How is that going? Do you find there's a lot of places to choose from now?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, we're in Falmouth at the moment and I reckon we've explored a fraction of this area alone there's plenty of places to hide from bad weather plenty of places to explore yeah since we left the marina I mean we were intending to leave the marina anyway that's the thing it was part of our plan
4: but when someone tells you, you you've got to and it's like well what if I want to stay yeah I don't want to now. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know
3: we'd like to have the choice we didn't have the choice but it was in line with our plans anyway so it was quite lucky for us but there was lots of other people in the marina who don't have the choice you know they they choose to live in a marina and their boats aren't ready for off-grid maybe um so yeah they've, they've found it really challenging
4: and what what they've done instead of it being like you can't stay in they're allowing liverboards to stay there but they won't give them the annual rate so you have to pay visitor which is
1: about double the price per month
3: yeah it's crazy expensive insane. So, so they've just so outpriced just a lot of people, people yeah pretty much
1: yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think it is a financial reason for the marinas to push for this? Because obviously, you know, if they can rent out a slip on a daily or weekly basis, it's more expensive. Or do you think it's facilities? Like, or like for example, in Canada, it's the, the part of the problem is that, especially in the West Coast, there's quite a large homeless population. And there are or have been a lot of derelict boats. So those very few sort of... um bad apples if you will who just bought a boat and then left it to rot in the middle of a channel or something those give a really bad reputation to everybody and i don't know if that's in the uk so that's what i'm trying to get to like what do you think is driving this sort of no liverboards here kind of thing
3: yeah i think you're probably right there it's probably very similar here um yeah we were we were told by the marina that it was uh (sighs) basically the impact on facilities and and the usage of facilities and things like that but we think it was probably probably actually uh, a combination of other things and that that was just their excuse Uh, and and you know the reason on the surface that they gave maybe not wasn't the main reason and it is you know there are boats in marinas that are hanging you know they are rotting like you said and i think it's probably yeah as you said a few bad apples that that spoil it for the rest of us but it's still a minority and you know if you keep your boat really tidy and you you don't leave the facilities in a mess then what's the problem you know
4: and it, as well it's a it's a community like we knew loads of people that lived on board in the marina and when we had some huge storms come through not the latest ones i think it was
3: last oh, boxing was, boxing day last year yeah was sort of it was, like 80 knots oh, it
4: was mad and it was all the liverboards who were out and they were checking fenders and warps because it was like
3: middle of the night two
4: o'clock in the morning and it kicked off and they've only got one night team in people like we were taking fenders of our own boat because we were sorted and then putting them on other people's boats to make sure that they don't get damaged
3: taking down flogging head sails um because the one Mm. the one night watchman's not going to be able to do that by himself you know so that it was a a, i think a useful community to have around Mm. definitely has its pros and cons yeah
1: yeah yeah that's a really good point i would imagine it actually adds a little bit of security if you have other people in a marina in terms of being like i don't know boat fires or something that might happen when the owner is not there on someone else's boat, they get loose or whatever. If there are people who live there and are there all the time, they know how things are supposed to look on, on other people's boats that they see every day as well. So yeah, it's a really shame. Um, I haven't come across that many destinations that are like, or uh, that many people that I've talked to who are like, yeah, we have a great Liverpool situation. Um, so for Australia and Mexico, I'd be like, no problem. It's, it's all good. So. <laughs> We aim there. <laughs> two two places
3: to add to our long list of places to sail for sure yeah oh
4: it's never ending
3: <laughs> i think it adds to the challenge of it in the uk um and you were saying about you know living off grid and uh continuously cruising as it were pretty easy place to do it when it's not winter and i would imagine that's even more so in canada where you are but uh yeah living on a boat in winter is really hard here you know
4: and- I'd, I'd happily just hibernate from november through to february just Place down, just sleep
3: for the whole time. Yeah, is isn't it? (laughs) This is why we need to sail somewhere sunnier. (laughs) Yeah,
1: too. Yeah, exactly. What kind of heating setup do you have? You must have. You mentioned a heater before because it's a must. So, What do you have?
3: Uh, We've just got one of the Chinese diesel heaters. We had some old herbish batches lying around, didn't we? That we were going to Frankenstein into one thing, but parts were really expensive for them. Um, And it's not the way it should be, but it was easier Mm -hmm. just to buy a new one cheap from China. And I don't like it, but it was really convenient. and. It's done as proud. It's really warm, very reliable, and uh, it still works. You know, so that's, <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, if it, you know, heats up the boat, uh, and maybe this is another benefit of having a little bit of smaller boat versus like a 45 foot boat that, uh, you know, even a smaller heater, it will work. <laughs>
3: yeah, absolutely.
1: And we've
4: It's a really simple setup because um, the boat originally didn't have any sort of heating. So it's something that we have to plumb in when we we're talking about like, oh, yeah, it'd be nice for like the vents to come out underneath like the saloon um, chairs and stuff. And then practicality of doing that it just would have torn the whole boat We've got apart. two
3: vents. We've got a vent pointing into our aft cabin and a vent pointing into the saloon. And that's it. And it's, it's OK for us. We plan to be somewhere where we don't need a heater eventually. <laughs> like, that would be nice. Um, and obviously, we're trying to stay all fossil fuel free as well. So the less fuel we burn for heating, the better. Um, as far as we're concerned. We've got a lot of mates who have um, log burners on their boats and they're gorgeous and the heat they give off is so nice and we were considering one of those because they're just lush. Mm. Um, There's nowhere to put it on this boat, really.
4: We'd have to sacrifice quite a lot to fit one in. Um, And
3: considering we're planning on sailing to places where we don't need heating, it was a big change we didn't want to make. But that's a really good option as well. And, of course, wood is a renewable resource Mm -hmm. if it's managed um, sustainably and ethically, you know, so... Potentially better than burning diesel. I don't know. Hard to say, it's isn't it? pros
4: and cons with everything. It's a compromise.
3: It is a compromise, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is for sure. And actually here in Canada, there are, I'd say, an increasing number of marinas who don't want wood-burning soaps because of the uh, suit that it gives out. So they don't necessarily love that idea. But have you found any or come across any challenges with insurance and heating? Or have you looked into that? Because I know, again, having looked into a little bit in Canada, open fire those beautiful fireplaces—they'd want to have big, no, no. If it's not already on the boat, <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. I would, I would say probably the same. We, when we're looking at heating options, um, we didn't actually inquire about insurance, but we know friends who have recently installed a Cubic Mini from Canada. Obviously, somewhere that cold is probably going to make pretty decent stoves, you'd think. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <100%.
4: laughs>
3: they've installed one of those, and I know they've had to be very careful about insurance and. Yeah, Ray and Dave, our friends, are you know, spot on with how they do a lot of stuff, aren't they? They research they really it are. very, very well, and then they do it once, they do it properly, and they've done a great job of the stove install. But I, I do know they looked into it very carefully, insurance-wise. So. I don't know what
4: the outcome was, but yeah, I know that they followed a set procedure, so I presume they yeah. got covered.
3: It's like anything else. It's like lithium batteries, minefield of insurance. <laughs> oh, so people think they're a drop-in replacement, but they're not. <clears throat> you know, And you have to look at that very carefully. There's not many companies that will insure lithium, so you've got to do your research. on
1: I had no idea about that. What's the problem with lithium? Are they some? Are they viewed as some sort of a hazard? Or
3: yeah, um, I mean, essentially, people are quite, I think, paranoid about lithium because its uh, potential to get very hot very quickly um, if anything goes wrong. And weirdly, I think I've seen more issues with lead acid batteries than I have lithium because the risk exists and it's managed properly you know you very rarely get problems with it but with lead acid i think people get complacent and let's not forget that it gives off hydrogen you know so we've yeah an acid you know we've heard some pretty scary things that have happened with lead acid batteries as well so i think there's risk with anything if you install anything badly it's probably going to go wrong but yeah lithium insurance wise i mean we've all seen um teslas on fire you know and and how difficult tesla cars are to put out when they're on fire so yeah there's certainly some attention about that at the moment i think like I said risk exists and it's managed properly it's it's not an issue really
4: I think that's why going for like decent batteries a well-known brand is always a good thing to do
3: oh especially for propulsion right yeah
4: because with propulsion you need it to be reliable you need it to have been tested rigorously so it is we saw it as an investment (laughs) to get really good batteries because there are some cheap ones out there but it's like "Mm, we were thinking about DIYing them as well
3: (laughs) DIY lithium is is an option but it depends what cells you use. And yeah, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if that Insurance. would be insurable. Yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. if it would be insurable. So yeah. yeah, it's an odd one.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot to consider and probably something, you know, if you're not electronically minded, you know, maybe consider getting some help when you're installing everything <laughs> just to make sure that it is all done properly. And, you know, even as a learning experience for, for oneself. So, because um, I know, you know, just watching YouTube, there's a lot of different um, setups out there.
3: <laughs> yeah, we definitely see a wide range of installs from (laughs) scary to excellent yeah it's been interesting
1: to look at yeah exactly so you guys you're off grid right now uh you know you're still working so if you don't mind sharing what what do you do for living and how's that going working on an off-grid boat
4: um so i'm a buyer for a company called uh whatzilla he's a Finnish company and they supply marine systems across the world um so they mainly um to the cruise industry, oil riggers,
3: yeah. Which, given our environmental, <laughs> yeah. uh, I know <laughs> focus, yeah, maybe but not yeah. the most ethical job choice, but it is remote, and they do look after you, don't they? they?
4: Yeah, they're they're amazing. Uh, to be fair, I've been treated really well, so I've been working with them for about a year. And um, before that, I was working for Lush Cosmetics as a buyer. And um, so everything that I do is just internet based on a laptop, as long as I've got signal, um, and I can call suppliers as and when I need to. It works really well for us. Yeah, and like I said, I normally do pretty early hours as well. So if I start at six, I finish at three, which then in the summer, in the UK means you get a good chunk of sunlight hours after. So that works really well. Whereas, and you're quite flexible, with your working hours. So if we do need to move or something, quite often, George is there sailing and I'll just carry on working. <laughs> be like, shout if you need me. <laughs> or if you hear like the boom go across, we be like, oh, do you need
1: a hand? <laughs>
3: I just have to shout down when we're tacking <laughs> yeah. so that she can switch sides with her laptop and that works okay. <laughs>
1: that's fantastic. So yeah, it's it's kind of a like a more traditional job, which is really interesting to hear that it is working because that's sort of my plan as well. Have a more, you know, a traditional job in the sense that, you know, not being self-employed, but having an employer and um, still trying to do the cruising. So I'm so glad to hear that that actually works.
4: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's just important that if anyone was um to to sort of approach uh your employer about being a bit more remote just get them on board of it like my boss she loves our lifestyle and she's really intrigued by it but it means that I have that degree of flexibility that I can be like I just need to have two hours so we can move the boat or do something and she's like cool just make up your hours um, as and when you need so it's just having that Communication. I'm quite lucky. I think coronavirus as well has, in some ways, people have benefited from it because you've had to work from home, and if you've already proved the concept that you can work from home, then that's your case, isn't it? Really?
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes uh, into a lot of different jobs that used to be traditionally more office based. Uh, so I think that is definitely a bit of a silver silver lining in in all of that. But have you found anything that is challenging? in terms of working from a boat for somewhat set hours you said you know flexibility is some somewhat required but uh, have you run into any issues with like internet connection or anything like that
4: yes um so what we tend to do if we go to like a new area we'll explore it at the weekend where we don't have to be as focused on having signal and then if we like a place and we have signal, we're like okay note to self put this in the book of like this is a good spot and there's others places like we're in the sillies last year and it had the most beautiful beach and it had absolutely no signal so it's like weekend spot that's cool that's fine we've discovered that
3: that's quite nice
4: in a way that's our
3: digital detox anchorage now (laughs) if we we anchor there no one can reach us and that's quite nice but it has to be on a weekend so before we sail to a new place we look at the the map from the uh the uh, mobile phone company, like provider, the um, the coverage map, we look at that to see where there's go- likely to be good signal. And as Sin said, yeah, we, we sc- scope it out on the weekend. And if it is good signal, then we know we can work there.
4: And I think as well, like, so on my um, mobile contract, I've got all you can eat data, and that's with one company. George has got the same on a different company. And then we've got like a little MyFi Fi dongle box, which again, is on another company, and we've gone for like the three biggest providers in the UK. So chances are, wherever we are, one of those three will have signal. It's very rare that we don't have signal in places.
1: Yeah, that's a really good idea to have sort of uh, all those providers covered that that makes sense. And of course, in the UK, the distances are fairly short. You know, if you do need to go somewhere, you know, you know, just keep going along the coast. It's it's not that remote. You know, it's not like you have to go to a different island that will take you a day and a half to get to or anything like that. So, uh, that's really cool, and I like that idea of having a little weekend getaway spot where there is no internet and no connectivity, just to be able to relax and actually enjoy the uh, the cruising life. Right? Yeah, I
4: think one of the, I think one of the most frustrating things about living and working remotely is when it's really lovely sunshine. I don't want to be sat in front of a computer. I'm just there in a lovely location, like looking out like, is it finished work yet? Can I go out and play? (laughs) Yeah.
3: That was always the issue when we worked in offices though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's very tempting to go for a swim sometimes, you know? Yeah easy to get distracted isn't it
1: yeah fair enough and i imagine that would only get worse if you you know eventually move on to say the mediterranean or somewhere to a different country where it's all new and exciting it's like well let me just sit down for eight hours and do some work (laughs) yeah (laughs) we
3: have to be we have to be very disciplined
1: very that's true that's a good uh, quality to have and probably something that is required uh, when you are doing what you're doing and obviously so you have you know a couple of years getting all the three years of experience of owning a boat and, and living on a board so I'm wondering whether you would have any tips for anyone who is you know not quite there yet so about to become a liveaboard sailor or about to start boat shopping or anything any tips on transitioning into the lifestyle
4: don't buy unnecessary things like it's easy when you have a house and a flat to have space and fill it that's the one thing we were really conscious of like we did seasons and we had very little stuff to be fair just like a bag of things and we were like, right, when we move back, let's just get the essentials and don't buy any extra things because that's just things you're just gonna have to get rid of. And um, we still had to scale down, mainly on the toys, like all the windsurf gear and stuff. Yeah. Like we had to scale that down because it's just we couldn't have it all. <laughs> yeah,
3: you can't keep all the windsurf kit we had on the boat. It was just silly, <laughs> right. but we needed something to keep us going while we were saving. You know, we, we needed something to entertain us and keep us focused. And windsurfing was our our thing, wasn't it? Really, mm. we still have some kit on board. But we can't have the six boards we used to have. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. Minimalism is is a big tip, I reckon.
4: It's really it's freeing as well, isn't it? Like you don't
3: We had a very empty
1: flat.
4: <laughs> we did. People come around and be like, apart from the plants lots
1: of plants I think you just described my apartment I have a lot of plants but uh, I've kind of known since we lived here for the last couple of years that uh, and we don't own this so it's worth just renting it's like well we're not going to buy like a whole ton of stuff just the necessities and uh, you know we're already thinking ahead like you know am I buying this is this going to be on the boat no well I shouldn't buy it
4: (laughs) yeah and it's a good thing to do to get into that mentality so then when you do move aboard you're like oh it's not as big a deal
1: yeah space is a
3: big challenge so yeah preparing for that
4: yeah i think it is like also accepting when we first moved on the boat we've like really thought where we were going to put things to make it efficient and easy to live on board and then like a few weeks later just being like this just does not work and just moving it all around and we're still doing it now aren't we
3: takes a while (laughs) for everything to find its place and where it (laughs) works best and everyone has their own way of doing it and until you get on the boat there's no way of knowing what that will be i reckon
1: yeah, fair enough. Those are really good points. Uh, so start leading towards minimalism even while you're still in the house. So that's great. And um, well, thank you for sharing all this experience and uh, stories with me. And I am wondering where would you direct people to go follow you guys online?
3: Instagram, probably the best place, eh? Yeah. We haven't we haven't strayed into YouTube territory yet. So our Instagram is is our most active thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. We are electric vagabonds on Instagram.
1: And there you have it. Go check these guys out on Instagram for some more electric sailing adventures. Next week, we are going to have a chat about accidents and injuries and how to prepare for medical emergencies at sea. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the episode. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to come say hi online, you can find me as Liverboard Sailing Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'll see you there. Bye for now.